Hey there, and welcome to Pink Squirrels, brought to you by Sapia AI, your guide to the future of HR, HR tech, and big HR ideas. That's right. Welcome to Pink Squirrels. I'm your co-host, Nate Hewitt, and I'm joined today also by Barb Hyman. For HR leaders, navigating and understanding the world of ethical AI is not always easy. Today, we're joined by Matthew Newman from Tech Innocence, a boutique consultancy that provides organizations with practical help and guidance on the application of AI ethics. Matthew explains how companies can benefit from the insight of an AI ethicist, the risks of an insufficient ethical focus, and how we can learn to better trust AI technology for recruitment. Let's get into it. Matthew Newman, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining us. AI ethics is something of a new cottage industry, if you like. In your view, what makes a good or qualified AI ethicist? Interesting question with lots of different views, I think. Um, And I think you'll probably find that every person working AI ethics will kind of um, focus on their part of of the the puzzle, what they're talented at. Um, What's what's become quite clear over the, the, the past few years is that actually it's quite a multidisciplinary role. It's not kind of like a single... Um, specialism, uh, you know, what we're seeing is it's an intersect between, um, you know, technical know-how, obviously, in an ability to stand toe-to-toe with data science um, types uh, to understand how the technology works to a degree. But also, of course, you know, you need that kind of uh, uh, social awareness, um, uh, you know, that degree of um, understanding of the sort of questions, the ethical questions. But I think one of the areas that we probably don't see as much of that. Again, maybe I'm favoring my, my own uh, talents here. We don't see as much of is that real practical hands-on uh, ability to take these concepts, to take that quite cerebral um, discussion points and ideas and concepts of what we should do and actually make that real for, for customers, for businesses who are actually you know, on the front line and have to make decisions and these decisions are quite pressured. You know, they don't have weeks to talk about this. They need to come up with their answers for their senior managers, their leaders, etc. So I think, you know, if I think about the, the different skills involved, that's a really important um, uh, uh, area that we don't probably give enough attention to in, in uh, AI ethics is that ability to, to speak the language of businesses, to understand what sort of... Um, uh, uh, their, their day is like, what they're experiencing, what their projects are like, what their constraints, goals, KPIs, etc. are like, and to be able to actually fit in and, uh, and, and help those, those businesses to, to make the right decisions. But Matthew, can I ask, I'm mean, going to be a bit challenging here, like but what are you Perfect. actually doing when you're an AI ethicist and you're sitting across from the business or sitting on the table with the business? Because I'm an ex-lawyer and so I know what the boundaries are that I'm solving for, right? It's about compliance with the law yes but what is the standard that ethicists apply how do you make it something that feels defensible and objective and not based on the whim of a particular ethicist that's that's fair um i mean first of all let's think let's think i think first of all is to note is the the kind of that regulatory legal um conversation is a baseline that's a kind of a hygiene level it doesn't sound very polite but that's that's a baseline a bedrock on which these conversations sit so at no point you know, do these conversations start to stray into the areas of are we, um, you know, uh, are, are we meeting our regulatory compliance requirements or not? That goes without saying. Um, I can give you my personal view on how I approach this. Um, I don't uh, approach clients with the idea of I'm going to um, let them know my feeling about a particular topic. I'm not there to tell them what's right or wrong. 
for for me my my role is to help them get to a point where they can actually make those you know i say informed intentional decisions where they have the ability to actually take a position um and my role isn't to tell them whether that's a right or wrong position my role is to make sure that they have taken um sufficient um, steps that you know they've treated the subject with uh, the appropriate level uh, of attention to actually come to a defensible position. And I don't mean defensible from a legal point of view. That's uh, you know that that lower level of hygiene is defensible from a, a kind of an ethical point of view to themselves, to their company, but also to their their clients uh, and to to the wider population. Have they gone to enough effort to understand people's viewpoints, the trade offs involved? Um, you know, the, the potential harms and impact of their decisions, have they gone to that effort and have they come to a, a, a stated um, accountable position on using the technology? So for me... So is it fair to say that, like, you know, if you go into one business and you're an advisor and I should share that Matthew and I came across each other because we shared a mutual client in a 6100 company that, you know, obviously believed in the importance of taking an ethics lens, Um but, you know, what's to guard against you as one ethicist coming in and offering a view or, or guiding the organisation through a process of thinking through an ethical lens versus someone else and getting them to a completely different place? Like how do you, how do you, you know, it, it, what frameworks do you use? I've always felt it was something similar to philosophy at university, this very sort of amorphous subject. Um, and, yeah. you know, it can mean, it can mean different things to, to many different people. How do you get... How do you get calibration and, and quality control, I suppose, around an industry that is, you know, unregulated? Yeah, I mean, it's 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 a it's a it's a fair question, um, and a, a lot in there. So, I mean, I think first of all, um, the, again, the position they come to isn't one that I kind of um, would want to guide. So, the idea is is that it emerges from their um, their environment. So, you know, their workforce, their expertise. Um, their stakeholders, their customers, the public. So um, the idea is it's not that I guide kind of um, according to what my values are. That's 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 not what I, I, I'm there for. So my, my hope would be that if you get two AI ethicists who are both good at their job, they should be able to kind of both surface the same kind of position and same um, values and same um uh, you know uh, same preferences from from that that group. Um, with regards to, um, you know, are there any sort of best practices, frameworks, etc.? Well, there's a, a lot of them, and they're surfacing quickly. So, it is rather a case of um, of taking what um, is uh, demonstrated to work, what I've personally used, uh, and also kind of what's being researched and, uh, and proven. I, 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 um, I do contribute to like uh, IEEE, for instance, their standards organization that are, are writing standards around this, where some of you know, the best uh, uh, minds come together. Uh, likewise, I've also um, uh, interfaced and worked with the World Economic Forum, who have got, again, you know, really decent minds here. So um, does it always work? It's A lot of this stuff is researched somewhat in, um, in isolation from the actual industry. It's not applied as it's researched. So sometimes when you kind of take it actually into the workplace and say, here's an approach we might take to get this, um, it doesn't work. It doesn't fly. So it is a learning uh, um, experience as much as kind of um, settled best practice. Um, will there come a point where there's an actual standard approach to actually doing this? I don't believe so. I think there will always be, you know, ways that we can 
better address the community. I've come from a change management background as well as um, technology, uh, and you know that that ability to interface with uh, with the organisation is still developing. It's still new models and new methods come up. Um, the, hmm. the concepts constantly evolve. How have you seen the Australian market start to really embrace the need for AI ethics? Ethicists. So, you know, if you looked at, say, the ASX 100, how many of them do you think are bringing in AI ethics um, as part of their their kind of team, if you like? Um, do you think we're sort of really low maturity relative to the rest of the world, or you know, what what do you see changing in that space in in Australia? Yeah. Out of interest. Yeah, that's that's um, interesting because I think first of all. Um, Australia's kind of become famous for being slightly um, uh, risk averse when it comes to um, you know business. That so the actual embracing of AI technology has perhaps been behind some other you know, major markets. So you know as a as a result, because they've been slightly uh, um, later in uptake of the technology, that need for kind of AI ethics and an ethicist or responsible use help has probably not presented itself as early. Um, what I'm seeing is that a lot of companies are extremely aware of um, of the, the the subject and the need for it. Um, there's recently been some quite high-profile um, stories regarding um, uh, facial recognition used in the retail industry, et cetera, which has kind of really pushed the conversation up. Um, and I... I most of the the sort of leadership teams and senior managers I speak to, are, you know, are really open to the conversation, but they have some other challenges. Um, so you know, their, their their data science capability in general is really tough to get off the ground. Most uh, organisations have, um, you know, a, a bunch of proof of concepts or pilots which don't really come to fruition or deliver anything. These are scattered across the organisation. They're having trouble, of course, getting the skills they need. They're having trouble. Um, uh, you know, scaling their capability to actually make it cost effective and something that brings benefit to the business. And for them, I think someone walking in with a new problem is is probably, you know, the worst thing that, that they could hear and not what they want to hear. Um, and as I said earlier, I think, you know, focusing on the, the sort of um, the, the skills of an AI ethicist, that ability to actually practically um, answer these challenges and help them so you know there are ways forward um it's not just an unsolvable you know gray area where everyone has an opinion you, you can come to positions and there are practical tools you can uh, use to do so with regards to bringing it back into the realm of practicality if you were to speak to a business you were advising a business that said hey look we're considering facial recognition technology as an example mm-hmm. In terms of you know not necessarily taking a position yourself or perhaps not bringing your own values or, or partialities to it, you know, is your role in that to say not necessarily don't use AI facial recognition technology because it's bad, but you might say instead, here are some issues that you may potentially face with it that you need to come to terms with. Is that more how you ca- characterize your, yeah, the advice that, that you give? That, that's a lot closer. So, I mean, typically, what I want to do is when I when I'm with a client I don't want to leave them in a situation where they need my services forevermore I know it sounds fun mm-hmm. um you know I would like them to be able to actually have these conversations internally where I'm gone so my aim is that okay when I first arrive at a client I can talk about the typical problems typical challenges and conversations they need to have to come to that informed decision but better still what I need to leave behind is a collective of people who can do that 
on their own who when they get a new project in the kind of the bell goes off they say oh we need to gather that crowd again we need to get in our data science uh, lead or, or expertise we need to get our brand people involved we need to get our kind of representation of different community groups involved and we know how to have those conversations and actually come to a position of like yeah we want to use this but with safeguards or no this is kind of not something we should be using so i i try to leave them that repeatable ability to actually have those conversations understand the kind of what's in play uh, and have the right right expertise and voices around the table so you're really building an organizational muscle yes of how do we look at things differently i guess another part of me thinks well you know ethics has been around forever it's probably one of the first um, disciplines if you like around you know business and, and how we behave in business right we're always you know, we've always wanted to be ethical yeah. um, people in business. I don't think anyone would say otherwise. So it's not as if this is a new thing. Um, and, you know, isn't that a capability that should exist anyway in a company through ideally having diverse perspectives? Like part of why we want diversity is different people see the problems differently. They'll empathise with different viewpoints. So if you were doing that well, do you still need an AI ethicist? Um because you kind of want to mainstream ethics in everything you do, not just because you happen to be looking at AI technology. Absolutely. Um, no, that's that's fair. I think I think the AI ethicist is actually maybe kind of a misleading job title in some ways because, I mean, in most companies there will be pieces that you can use. There's there's things in place. There's these kind of capabilities that already exist. Um, you know, and, and for SMEs, of course, that's a different discussion. But for the larger companies, a lot of the pieces exist. It's just how to bring those tools to bear on this particular problem because you're marrying some quite different groups. So, you know, um, ethicists or people, you know, around ethics within an organization might not have had this level of exposure to a particular technology. And, you know, it's, it's marrying these different groups in together, bring them together to have the right conversation. It's, and, and I think it's really important to sort of note here. Um, and, you know, maybe this is something else that the AI ethics capability discipline um, needs to uh, to be aware of is that in these organizations, we're, and no shame, we're, we're not at that level of actually sort of talking about that really cerebral stuff. The, the kind of conversations I'm having are really quite straightforward ones about empowering people. Um, you know, basics of understanding what is AI, how does this machine learning in particular, how does it work, why is it different from your pocket calculator, and what are the kind of implications of that? Um, you know, what are the... Can you share, by the way, Matthew, how do you respond to that? Like, how do you, you know, why is it that the ethics function has emerged so strongly in the use of AI? Like, what is it about AI that demands or commands that ethical well, lens? I, I might say, actually, it's a bit late because it's not specific to AI. Um, machine learning has its particular kind of um, unique, uh, um, you know, unique risks, but it's a lot of it's just about um, technology allowing us to do things with power at scale. Um, and that's a, a question maybe we should have been talking about a little bit earlier. But, you know, uniquely for mm. machine learning, for instance, um, is very much around, you know, people need to understand that it is a model. It is not um, It is not rules-based. It is not implementing something that is uh, kind of understood and the, the correlations are well understood. It's implementing a model which is simplifying a set of relationships we don't understand. It is by its nature going to be imperfect because it is a model. Um, it is by its nature um, using generalizations uh, uh, to some degree, etc. cetera. Um, it is by its nature... Um, 
using uh, you know past history, using data we currently have to infer what the future will be. And uh, you know, and as such, if you use it as a predictive tool by its nature, if in the past we did things wrongly and we follow verbatim what the model predicts, we may continue to do things wrongly. So, you know. So, so Matthew, just on that, like that's what I find, you know, as a CEO of a company in this space that's at the really leading edge of innovation, really challenging in market. Because what I hear when you say that is that effectively all of these tools and tech are being lumped into one descriptor. In fact, there are a number of things that we don't do in our AI, um, which puts us in a separate category to what you've yes. just explained. So we don't use machine learning models. We use rule-based models. We don't use historical data from your workplace because we know that amplifies bias. And part of the challenge is that people come to the table, unfortunately, heavily flavoured by the one or two popular stories like Amazon, and they imagine that every tech is the same. But in fact, you know, educating people to really understand and sort of de-layer it, um, you know, that is what's hard. Um, but not all AI no. is the same. Like, how do you, how do you, how do we all educate the market to to be more, um, you know, scrupulous, I guess, around and and to learn more about how to differentiate AI that they can trust and AI that they should look more closely at. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a broad question. I can give you sort of one one key thing that I think would help, um, and this is something that I, I aim to do with clients. Um, you know, when when you have new technologies, often the people who are specialists in those technologies are extremely in demand for the particular niche skill they have. Um, you know, I, I kind of when the internet first appeared. It, most people within organizations didn't really touch or deal with the internet. The internet happened in another room over there where the internet people did internet stuff. Um, and, and so here we are sort of in a similar situation where you know, the data science team do their data science stuff over there, in that room over there. Um, and, you know, and with other technology, we've appreciated the role of the specialist to actually guide the organization on using that uh, technology appropriately. And here we are again. It is important for anyone who's kind of a, a you know, head of data science, head of AI, etc., uh, to realize that they need to help organizations that are kind of, you know, a, a less technically able parts of the organization to understand. Because, um, you know, I think we, we focus very much on the big tech companies and what they're doing, etc. But actually, and you'll know this, uh, so much of the, the use of um, AI machine learning like technologies, you know, this frontier tech is actually coming in from quite specialized point solutions and they're going direct to the business. They're not going to just kind of the, 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 the room full of you know people who know the subject. They're going to the head of marketing. They're going to the head of HR. They're going to the head of customer service, legal, whatever. And they're talking to them and saying, you know, we've got this product and you're right. The people in those teams need to be able to say, oh, I get that. I understand you know, your product happens not to use this technology, so therefore I know the kind of risks I'm taking by using it, whereas this one here is using kind of like, you know, 10 different sort of models that are all like hideously bad uh, RNNs or something, and, you know, we, we have no idea how it's working, and they will understand and appreciate the, the, the difference uh, in those technologies. And it's not about you know, kind of having a PhD in artificial intelligence, but it's having the right resources around you to ask the right questions to say, hey, how are you doing this exactly? And, you know, when someone from your company says, well, here's what we use, they know where they are and they know the decisions they need to take and they can feel confident. Um, and really quickly on that point, this actually enables companies like yours to do better because, you know, if they know the risk they're taking, if they're happy and confident that they're taking decisions, 
um, fully aware, informed, and intentional, they're going to have a better, you know, better risk appetite. They're going to think, "Hey, I'm okay to use this. I'm not going to see my, you know, face on the front page of the paper for all the wrong reasons. We're good to use this." Um, so, without that understanding, without that empowerment, they're going to be risked off. They're not going to be happy with the idea of using frontier tech, where they don't even know their mm. their risks. Yeah, I mean, I think one thing that I um obviously can observe being in this business is that AI is empowering because at the end of the day, it's data. And when you have data on something, you can measure what's going on in a way that you cannot when you're relying on, you know, the algorithm inside our skull. So we operate in the space of hiring, as you know, and the ability to assess for bias in terms of how the assessment is working um, is visceral. And it gives a level of transparency that the businesses have never, ever had before. But somehow that seems to get lost on um, people on the other side, if you like, where they just don't believe um, that it can be unbiased. But actually, the beauty of using AI is you can actually yeah. see it. Um, it. It is visible and it's, and it's sort of visceral. Like that in itself is hugely confronting to people. And the other thing that I find where there's a lot of, assumptions being made is around whether people want it or not, like from a candidate perspective. And what we've seen and independent researchers have seen is that um, actually the gender application rate and the minority application rate will increase when they know AI is being used because they believe and trust that they're going to get a fair opportunity than when it's a human, because we all know that humans are great at bias and, and mirror hiring. Um, you know, how do you, how do you see those turning up in your conversations? You know, those human biases, if you like, around AI, there's almost like a bias against, against AI, because I guess all disruption comes with fear and people are yeah. scared of what this thing is that they don't quite understand. Precisely. And I also think that the, you know, as AI ethics discipline, one thing we've been really, really good at is, um, doing conference uh, presentations where we pull up one of the standard stories. So, you know, the Amazon hiring one, um, Compass in the US, um, et cetera. You know, there's, a, there's a few of the standard stories. There have been about five years, I think, I've been seeing these same presentations with the, the same thing. And uh, again, if you're not giving answers on how people can actually know if that's the kind of where they're going to be, if they don't have any ability to say, well, will that be me in the future? They're going to be worried about all of this technology. Um, it's... And, you know, in, in your case, say, well, we don't use that. We actually, you know, we can demonstrate how we um, we can actually uh, combat these sort of biases or, you know, human uh, human uh, um, deficiencies, if you will. Um, but if if that connection between that scare story, that boo story and actually steps they can take to educate and understand, uh, educate themselves and understand what they're getting into hasn't been made, then basically all of these solutions look like they could be that one that was on the board and, I, as a head of, you know, HR or hiring, might be the next person up there. So, and I think there's another point I really wanted to pick up on that you said is um, it's really important when people educate themselves on this technology to actually understand they continue to have a role. I mean, what AI is really good at, as you said, is it can make really transparent the reality that people are facing. And we get this opportunity to see what history looks like in data in front of us. There's suspicions you might have had that things weren't actually done fairly. They weren't suspicions. We actually can see that by by um, by training uh, models to actually use the data. They surface and make really self-evident the, these kind of traditional, you know, inherent historic biases. Um, but that's only useful if companies use the technology in that way. If they say, oh, it's magic, they're going to tell us what a good candidate looks like, then that 
distinction is lost. That only happens when they look at it and say, okay, well, we can actually see what we've done historically. Now we can take other actions to, to address that. We can, you know, the answer might not even be technology. We might go out and do a completely separate program to hire people in particular groups. We might have support within the workplace so we don't get so much churn with certain groups, etc. But that only happens if they treat the AI not as magic, but as a kind of, you know, a, a pointer to, to historic data that surfaces those patterns. Hey, Matthew, when do you find yourself being brought in to the process and when do you recommend to customers, to organisations that they bring in someone with your Good. Um, so, yeah, I, I I like to kind of have you know, models in, in my head of, of how you know, appropriate times, etc. So realistically, I get called in at different times. I can be called in you know, two minutes to, to midnight when they're about to go live and someone said, hey, hang on a second, are you sure you should be doing that? That happens. Um, you know, I, I also want to make clear that I'm realistic. You know, we, we can't just go in and start to introduce layers and layers of extra governance, etc. problems, etc. It's got to be lightweight, this stuff. It's got to be usable. And you know, working in this kind of space for a couple of decades now, I understand the pressure that project managers and their teams are under and kind of having a six-month hiatus to kind of discuss whether or not this is the right thing is probably not realistic. So with that in mind, three kind of key points. One is if you manage to catch this at the beginning, you're discussing using technology of this nature, you can have really good conversations about whether or not this is the right thing to do for your organization with its relationship to its customers, society, um, its brand, its kind of, uh, um, you know, its uh, trust with uh, with the community, etc. So those are real kind of high level conversations, because if we don't have the data, we don't see how it's performing in your organization, we probably won't be surfacing some of the concerns, more concrete risks. Secondly, is during that design and implementation phase, as you start to see how the system is performing, even stuff that's kind of off the shelf is going to perform differently, of course, with different data sets. So we start to see how it performs. We start to see where there's problems arising and surfacing. We can certainly preempt some of them by having those early conversations, but sometimes you have to actually see how it's, it's performing. And finally, and kind of really importantly, um, is to have the ability to change course during operation. So, you know, the, the system might change, the data might change, the environment might change, appetites for this kind of technology might change. You might get a complaint and you might get, um, you know, unforeseen kind of feedback that you didn't imagine. A newspaper article might appear for one of your competitors using similar, all this kind of stuff. You want to know it's performing well in the context it's performing. So you need to have these conversations and they're not like, you know, weeks of kind of sit down, beard stroking, etc. It really is, you know, were the decisions we made, were the positions we took, are they still valid? Are they still the right things? Is the system performing as we expected? And is the environment still the same that that system's performing in? So three stages. So, um, so don't take this personally because it's not intended as that, but, you know, I often wonder whether people become AI ethicists and they universally don't believe in AI, right? So that they're there to almost pull the brakes on um, because reality is that all this repeat, rinse and repeat around Amazon, like it's interesting to me that that story keeps getting replayed. Does that mean that there aren't others? Because the technology, by the way, gets better and smarter and organisations get better at how they understand and apply AI. So do we need to keep replaying the same example because... We refuse to believe that actually there is advancement in that space. But um, 
you know, it just feels to me, and I know that AI can be incredibly powerful for an organization. In our case, it delivers an experience to candidates that is fairer. Look at the data it shows at again and again. It delivers an experience that's more dignified, that's empowering. And yet, you know, instead of really um, being almost, you know, proud of we've chosen to use this powerful technology because it ensures we do give everyone a fair go. We do give people something back from this experience, yet they seem to be kind of hiding behind we don't want to let anyone know that we're using AI. And to me it just feels like a really missed opportunity because it's a net plus big time, right? Aside from the fact you get all this data, which is yeah, that's that's. I, mean, I get where you're coming from. Absolutely, that's that's tough. Um, so, uh, so first of all, personally, I absolutely believe in the technology. I I really enjoy AI. I think it's fantastic. I I'm involved in quite a few different kind of areas, researching um, distributed AI technologies. Uh, like I said, I'm I'm kind of looking at how quantum's going to affect AI and how that's going to boost how it interfaces with neurotech, etc. So I'm absolutely kind of not this stop it at all uh, at all costs, um, and we'll throw sort of ethical barriers in the way to stop this. Um, why you know, are there people who have that? I'm sure there are. I'm sure there are people who basically, uh, you know, whatever it takes to stop. But um, why do we not see um, loads of examples coming up? I'll be fair, I don't think it's because there aren't other examples because I do experience other examples that are just as much fun and just as kind of you know gossipy as this, that, that lovely Amazon story. There are other stories out there, absolutely. Um, but you need to be involved in the on the work floor, of course. If you don't actually sort of have these conversations, then you're kind of recycling conversations others have had. Um, and yeah, I, I, I think it is a bit of a shame. It does... It does mean that that I mean, people are less um, open to talking about using this technology. But again, I'll come back to what I said earlier. If they have the confidence that they're making good, informed, intentional decisions, if they get the risk and they're happy that they're managing that risk, it becomes a lot more likely that they're going to have those, you know, be open to tell people they're using this. So, I mean, it seems a little bit sort of like... Um, um, you know, not the right person or it wouldn't be someone that you typically think you should involve in the conversation, but do involve brand and reputation in the discussions on whether or not you use this technology. Um, you know, companies spend absolutely, you know, millions on building their brand and trust and whatever. Of course, they're hesitant to throw that all away for a proof of concept or a pilot. But if you can help the brand team understand what they're doing and what's happening, and they can come into the conversation and help make those decisions on how to use the technology. But again, if people don't understand the risk, they're going to be adverse to risk. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the the, the flip side of that would be that I think you're you're going to pass the EOC, EOC with flying colours when you use the right kind of AI because you've got the order trail and you've got the data and you're doing the testing, which none of which exists when you're using yeah. normal human processes. So I think, again, there's that view of um, uh, that it's not going to support the brand, but actually it's a vastly better way of delivering a service um, given given yeah. the, you know, the capabilities of the tech. Um, just where do you think it should sit within the organisation? Like should it sit in risk or in legal? Another one of the good in, questions. In, I, I like this. Business? I mean, I just wanted to sit somewhere to start off with and kind of where it ends up, we will talk about once they actually do it. Um, so, okay, trade-offs. Um, risk. The problem I have with putting it in the risk area is risk is a really, really powerful way of actually motivating organisations to do something. So I get it. It's fine. Um, 
if you say, oh, big scary risk, kind of money sort of appears and, you know, they, they want to do stuff and it's, that's a great way of doing it. But we're, we're really missing something. I was speaking to someone who said that, you know, impact assessments outside of this technology space are things that have positives in them. Impact assessments within the AI space are very much around kind of um, hurdles that need to be uh, vaulted in in order to get to the sunlit uplands, the the, the promised mm. land or whatever. So yeah, the risk space tends to have this kind of like, okay, we have something that's inherently good. We've got a few things that we need to tick off and get rid of. And it doesn't allow you to have that really opportunistic way of like, how can we make life better for people? So that stuff you were talking about, you know, how can we measure how people are traditionally being um, discriminated against in the hiring procedures and take further actions? If you're only doing it from a risk point of view, you don't get to have those conversations because all you're trying to do is make sure you don't do bad stuff. So I find risk a bit of a dodgy area, but it's, I understand why. Uh, legal. I'll be fair, and this is not personal to you at all, so don't take it that way. It's a really difficult conversation with a lot of legal teams because they tend to fall back on, have we met our required level of whatever, you know, if, if we hit the bar there. Um, so often, you know, you'll be having conversations about, do people know you're doing this? And they'll say, yeah, we gave a, um, a, you know, a disclaimer up front. There's a consent, they press a consent button, it's done. Um, you know, and that's a challenge for, for, for legal is to have those two things in mind of like, we've done our basic hygiene, we've done the bare minimum, but if we want to keep the trust, we need to do a little bit more. I'm sure there's plenty of lawyers that can do it, but I've struggled to, to kind of have that conversation. Um, but like I say, it, it, I just want it to end up somewhere. Uh, finally, data science team is actually bizarrely where it's happening right now often. These decisions are currently happening with data scientists who think, um, should we be doing this? Yeah. Um, and that's also probably not the right place to be having these conversations. Um, so I don't mind where they are. Um, I, I think if there's a, an ideal place, um, I guess it would be with risk. Thanks for listening. Think Squirrels is brought to you by Sapia AI, creator of the world's first AI smart interviewer. 